All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us through the Bible, that you do not leave us adrift in this world, not knowing what to do, but you give us guidance. You hold our hand. You show us the way. You are a true shepherd. And now we pray that as we sit humbly before your word, may we learn, may you open our hearts, may it have value for our role in society, uh, that we can give you glory. Whatever we do, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so... Uh, last week, we talked about the storyline of the Bible, which is a, a good setup, a good review, and also a good setup to this week's lesson. Uh, God placed Adam in the garden. He is to image God, and he is to image God specifically imaging God's kingliness. That Adam was supposed to be a king in the garden. And he was to be a king in the garden by um, putting all things under his dominion, all things under his feet, uh, the creatures of the garden. Most specifically, uh, the serpent, Satan. Um, but Adam failed in his role. And then Adam, uh, in fact, reversed positions with Satan. And he listened to Satan. He obeyed Satan. So that Satan became the usurper king. Um, and Adam became subjugated, enslaved. And, and that uh, Satan is now ruling um, this world. And he rules specifically through the empires of the world. <clears throat> Right? This is very important. Uh, uh, the, the kingdoms and the empires of this world are the proxies, are the puppets of Satan. But then the gospel is that God sends a second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do, which is to be a true king. And he comes by smashing Satan. He smashes the reign of Satan um, and thereby establishes a restored kingdom of God, um, a renewed Eden and thereby bringing the church to co-rule with them. And that's the storyline of the Bible. Uh, the reason why I bring this up is because if this is the story, right? If the second Adam only comes, if, if Christ comes into power only because uh, he smashes the kingdoms of the world. Remember, that's uh, the image from Daniel chapter 2. There's this uh, statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreams of that's made up of all the empires of the world. And then this rock... Uh, cut by no human being, smashes the statue, pulverizing it into dust, and then the stone grows and grows, right? So if Christ only comes into power by smashing Satan, then why is it that the empires of this world still stand? Why are there still powers, rulers, and authorities in defiance of Christ? And so that's the question we're going to ask. Um, it's kind of like, remember I evoked the story of Narnia? Right? I said that Aslan can only come into power by destroying, in a cosmic battle with the White Witch, by destroying the White Witch. Why is the White Witch still ruling? Why, when we turn on TV, do we see the White Witch still in, in power? And so that's the question. Um, and so it goes, to the, it goes to the basic question of the relationship between the church and the state. Um, and I just want to preface it by saying that this is a topic that a lot of good Christians disagree on. Another one of those controversial issues. Um, I have a position that uh, I've thought about for a long, long time. And uh, I believe it is biblical. You guys can uh, determine for yourself. Does everyone have a hand up? Gary? Yeah. Okay. Um, but let me just say that this is a controversial view. Uh, that there are people dispute, people fight. Um, and... Uh, and Again, if you end up disagreeing with me, <laughs> uh, it's okay, um, because what unites us is the gospel. This uh, is definitely related to the gospel, but this itself is not the gospel, okay? So uh, let's dive right in. So the question is, what is the fundamental nature of the kingdom of God? And the answer is that Christ has come as king, but his kingship is already but not yet. This is a very important concept. His kingdom is here, but not here. Uh, his kingdom is, is uh, inaugurated, but it's not yet consummated. Okay? And a great passage is uh, Mark chapter 1. Can I have Ashley read that for us? Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Yeah, so here's the question based on Jesus' answer. Is the kingdom already here or is it entirely future? And what is his answer, Ashley? Christ's kingdom has come, but not yet. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is that it's at hand, right? What does at hand mean? 
near. Near, yeah, some translations put it near. It literally is, um, has drawn close. It's a very ambiguous answer, and it's purposely so. I mean, if Jesus wanted to be super clear, he would say, the kingdom of God is now, <laughs> right? The kingdom of God is here. But he doesn't say that. He says it's at hand, or it's drawn close. Um, he purposely makes it ambiguous because it's here, but it's not here. It's already, but not yet. Does that make sense? This is the framework that we have to work under. And you can see this kind of duality of, king, of his kingdom in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Let me just read it for you. Skip down to verse 24. Then comes the end. So we're talking about the very end of all history, right? The end of the story. When he, speaking of Christ, delivers the kingdom of God, I mean, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, right? Rule, authority, power. Remember from last week, what is that, uh, those tr trio of words? What does that mean? Uh, Yvonne, do you remember? Rule, authority, power. Harry, what does rule, authority, power mean? Satanic power. Yes. So after he crushes all satanic rule, again, through the, his, the puppets of the world's empire, he will deliver the kingdom. So what does verse 24 say, essentially? Is the kingdom here or a future? Neiman, what is it saying? Verse 24 alone. The operative word would be, it's a temporal word. Where's the time indicator? End. No, no, no. Delivers. No, no, no. <laughs> Comes. Huh? Comes. Comes. No, no, no. After. After. Uh. Okay. <laughs> so that's the time sequence, right? When will Christ deliver the kingdom? After he destroys. So is it, has it come yet? No. Okay. Ah, but let's read verse 25. For he must reign until... He has put all his enemies under his feet. Where's the time indicator there? Until. 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 So what does that tell us? Is the kingdom here or not yet? Huh? Ashley? Be bold. Yes. If you're wrong, be bold in your wrongness. Huh? Yes. It, yes. It's, yes what? It's here. Here. That's right. Right? He must reign until. Right? So here Paul gives us this duality. It's he will deliver the kingdom after and then he will... He must reign until. So it's both, right? Uh, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So that gives us, that tells us right there, right? The final enemy is death. Is death still present? Do people still die? Yes. Okay, so Christ has not yet come into his full kingdom. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So that's the paradigm. The kingdom is already, but not yet. And that is the answer. And then that will explain everything. That's my thesis statement, okay? That explains our relationship to politics. That explains the relationship of church and state. That explains how we should vote and so forth. Um, any quick questions? This is just a setup. The real meat is coming. Any questions or clarification uh, questions on this? Doesn't that sound like a contradiction? Yes. The gospel is full of paradoxes. You are sinner and yet justified, righteous. Gospel is full of paradoxes. You are, you know, wicked, and yet beautiful and righteous and obedient before God. Okay? Paradoxes. All right. If you don't like paradoxes, you don't want to be a Christian. There are other religions that resolve the paradoxes for you. All right, so let's go on. So the key to understanding this already not, but not yet is to understand the story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible informs us about this dynamic of already but not yet, that the kingdom... Uh, is not yet here, and yet it is here. And this leads me to this uh, next chart uh, in which I sort of map out for you that where you are in the story determines how you're supposed to relate to the state, how you're supposed to understand politics. And the two categories that I, I, I outline here is theocracy and dual citizenship. What does theocracy mean? Gary, looking down will not spare you from <laughs> what is theocracy okay Justin oh Aikman um, isn't theocracy like um, a government that's ruled by religion okay very good uh, it's a it's it's where religion and politics is fused yes right so the word theo what does the word theo mean anyone belief. huh belief close theo god god and crassy you, you've probably seen this word it's a suffix attached to other words like demo. Government. Yes, government rule, right? So instead of democracy, demo is people, right? Instead of aristocracy, rule by 
the Aristocats, now by the elites, uh, is ruled by God, right? So in a, in a theocracy, there are no rivals to God. Okay? And church and state are fused. Okay, they're one. Dual citizenship, let me define it for you guys, because this is my thesis. This is where uh, the controversy enters, right? This is my particular thesis. Dual citizenship means that Christians live in two kingdoms. The formal name of this position is called two-kingdom theology. Okay, so Christians live in two kingdoms. We live in a, uh, uh, we live in a uh, um, spiritual kingdom, which is ruled by God. Uh, uh, and then we also live in a political kingdom, uh, which is not, which in many ways is set against God. It's uh, opposing God. And so it's not, there are no rivals. There are rivals, but we live in these two realms. So let me draw the two realms. Okay. So we live in, um, we live in both of these realms, right? Uh, you can call this the church. You can call this the state. And they're separate. They're not fused, right? In theocracy, right, it's combined. Okay? But in, uh, in dual citizenship, we live in this tension of existing in two, uh, two kingdoms at the same time. And uh, it's kind of an uncomfortable position, um, but there it is. And uh, the important thing to know is that the spiritual is invisible, and then the political is visible. Okay? And this is why you can live. This is why, oh, you know what? I should draw it like this. So it. I'll draw it with dashes, so it gives it the aura of uh, invisibleness. <laughs> I don't know if you guys can, get, can see that in the imagery, but they, they're on top of each other. Right, they have different domains. Um, so it's, it's, it's the invisible and the, in, and the visible over, overlaying each other, and yet they're separate. Okay? So that's my definition of dual citizenship, and we will further define that as we go through the class. Uh, let me look at my notes. Okay. Good. All right. So just to review, dual citizenship means that there are dual power, two power centers. There's a, a, a power that acknowledges God as true and right, and then there's a power center that says, um, I don't, we don't believe in the God of the Bible, and we live in both, both realms, both kingdoms, right? Not fused. Okay, now, where do we see this? Look at Eden, right? So this is my thesis, is that throughout re redemptive history, we see it phase in and out. Let me just, let me make it really stark. <clears throat> So let's start with Eden. Genesis 1. Can I have uh, uh, Karen read it? Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Okay. Notice, there are no, please don't flip the page yet, there are no uh, rival <laughs> powers to God. Right? Um, man ruled as a vice regent under God, imaging God, and there are no um, there are no competing powers. There are no two power centers. It's all fused into one. God is king, right? And man rules as God's vice regent king. Now let's go to the next page. The patriarchs. It completely changes. Okay. Uh, this is. A, let me read the story for you because I need to set it up a little bit. This is uh, the story of Abraham. And uh, you guys know that Abraham wanders around Israel, right? wanders around the land of uh, Palestine, uh, the Canaan, the Promised Land. 
And uh, he's constantly interacting with the, the powers that are ruling Canaan, right? And this is Abimelech, king of Gerar. He's a Canaanite king. And let me underscore and emphasize to you that Abimelech does not acknowledge God. He's not a believer. He does not confess uh, the God of the Bible. And this is how Abraham treats or relates to King Abimelech. When Abraham reproved King Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know what, who has done this. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. All right, I just want to focus on that last phrase there. Covenant here simply means like a treaty, okay, for our purposes here. It means, so, so what happens is Abraham acknowledges that King Abimelech is a legitimate ruler. He does not say, hey, we're fighting over this well. We will, I will have to kill you, right? You, you are a pagan. I must kill you and, unless you acknowledge the true God of the Bible. He does not. He says, I acknowledge that you are the, rule, the rightful ruler. Let me negotiate. Let me have a contract. Let me purchase watering rights from you and use this well. Let me give you these things. Does that make sense? Very important that you remember that they made a covenant. Okay, Abraham and King Abimelech. Now let's go to Israel. Now Israel is a theocracy. And if, if the kingdom here, if this is the kingdom consummated, and this is the kingdom offered, then Israel is the kingdom prefigured. Okay? Or, or foreshadowed. Or it's kind of like a, 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 what do you call that? Foreshadow. Yeah, I'm just going to stick with that word. Foreshadowing, prefiguring of what will ultimately come. And it evokes what happened before in Eden. Okay? And so Israel is a theocracy. So let's read the rules of a theocracy. Gary, can you read? Uh, what Moses writes in the Mosaic Covenant, verse 23, Exodus 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Hittites and I block them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do they do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Pause right there. What is the rule? The rule, the principle is that here's Israel, right? And within Israel is a renewed Eden. Okay, it's evo directly evoking Eden. Okay, so Israel is a kind of like corporate Adam put back into the garden. And Israel is supposed to do what Adam failed to do. What was Adam supposed to do? Adam was supposed to rule and guard the garden. Here comes the serpent, the enemy of God. What was Adam supposed to have done? stomped on, this, on the serpent, said, how dare you uh, whisper treasonous, blasphemous things out of the garden with you. Israel is supposed to do that in the garden, in the new garden, which is the land of, of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so Israel is supposed to push out all pagan, all Canaanite people. Because they're, they're evoking, again, the theocracy of, of Eden. So let's keep reading. right? So they're supposed to overthrow no... no uh, uh, not like Abraham, right? Friendly relations with Abimelech? No, right? Overthrow? I mean, it's a kind of polite language, but basically what, what happened, what did Israel have to do? Israel had to pull out swords and try to kill the Canaanites, right? Gary, can you keep reading? Second paragraph. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. Oh, I stop right there. You shall drive them out before you. What Adam was supposed to do to the serpent, Israel is now supposed to do in the, in, this, in the second Eden. Does that make sense? Keep going. You shall make no covenant with them. Okay, stop right there. Let's just pause. Okay, this is crucial to know. Israel was not supposed to make any covenants, any agreements, because when Satan slithers up to you, and remember, the Canaanites are puppets of Satan. Right? The Canaanites are proxies of Satan. And so when the, sa when, when the serpent slithers up to you, what do you say? Do you say, let us covenant together. Let us make an arrangement. No, you stomp them. You smash them. So Israel is not supposed to make covenants. Okay, Israel is not supposed to tolerate 
the presence of Satan through the presence of the Canaanite kings in the land of Israel. So keep reading. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Okay, any questions about what Israel is supposed to do? Israel is a theocracy, right? Church and state fused, right? Uh, David is king politically, and he is also to lead the people in worship and devotion to the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Any questions about Israel? All right, let us go on. Um, let's read the exile. Uh, who, who are we at? Uh, let's have Harry read it. Oh, let me set it up for you. So, exile. So what happens is, Israel, just like Adam, repeats the story. Right? How did they fail? They failed exactly in the same way Adam failed. Adam should have stomped on the serpent. He should have ruled over the serpent. But Israel, just like Adam, negotiates, cozies up to, lives with. In fact, what does he do? He, Israel intermarries. Israel um, uh, embraces the Canaanites. And so God says, okay, just like Adam, you failed. And just like Adam, you are kicked out of the garden. Uh, you're expelled. It's called exile. And so Israel, the whole story of Israel is really just a repeat of Adam in the garden. And it's just to reinforce in people's mind the failure of humanity, that they cannot obey the law, okay? But that's a whole other story. That's a whole other point. But let's, uh, let's read. And so what happens is Israel goes into exile, into Babylon. Babylon is the seat of the Babylonian Empire, an extremely pagan uh, uh, empire, completely adverse, hates God, destroys the temple, right? They spit on the name of God. Babylon is considered a, a, a decadent, uh, wretched, evil, wicked city. So that in, in the book of Revelation, when they want to speak about Satan, how do they refer to Satan? They refer to her as Babylon. Okay? So Israel is in Babylon now. The Jews are in Babylon. How are the Jews supposed to live? Jeremiah the prophet writes to them this letter. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons, daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is really an amazing passage. And the more you understand the story of Israel, the more you'll find this a remarkable passage. Did God say to Joshua, go into the pagan city of Jericho, seek the peace of the city, pray for the city, prosper? What did, what did God command Joshua? <coughs> Destroy Jericho. <coughs> smash Jericho. And now God says, here you guys are living in this, another pagan Canaanite city, but now completely different rules. Now live among them. Build houses. Have jobs. Be good citizens. Pray. Seek the welfare. The word welfare there is the Hebrew word shalom. There is no English equivalent. It just means wholeness, completeness, uh, peace, prosperity, well-being. It's just an amazing word. Seek the shalom of this pagan city. Dual citizenship. That's the paradigm. Does that make sense? Because they're exiles, okay? Notice that, uh, and I want to underscore this point, um, Israel as a theocracy is no more, and that they're not supposed to destroy the pagan cities, but they're supposed to live as dual citizens, right? They're still supposed to, they're not supposed to give up on worshiping God. Remember the story of Daniel, right? Remember when the Babylonian king says, bow down to this idol. What did, Bab what did, what did Daniel do? I'm not going to bow down to any idol. I worship the true God. So he was thrown into the lion's pit. right? So, the, so you only acknowledge God as God, but you're still uh, good citizens. What was Daniel, by the way? He was the prime minister of the Babylonian empire. So here is, here's Daniel saying, I only acknowledge God as the true God, and yet I am a political uh, 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 civil servant in the empire. Hi, Judah. All right. Um, any questions about exile? Any questions about exile? Israel and exile. And how it's dual citizenship. No one's contesting this? All right, good. I'm trapping you now. Dual citizenship as opposed to theocracy. theocracy all throughout. 
I all throughout the exile period? I mean, I mean that's the, the other view, besides... Uh, what other view? Besides, because you're, you're, um, <coughs> you're arguing for two kingdoms, dual citizenship, right? Yeah. Uh, what's the, what would be the opposite view? Um, I will get to that at the end, okay? Because that will muddy the waters. I just want to keep it clear. I don't want to put mud in the way, just keep it clear so you can see to the bottom. All right, uh, let's skip, because the New Testament, this is the controversy, okay? Because we are right now in the New Testament, right? No one contests that. Does anyone think they're in Israel? No, okay? We are, we, are in, we are in the New Testament. So the question is, what is the New Testament period? Well, the question is answered by looking at redemptive history. Let's skip to new creation. Let me read it for you. Revelation 19. This is, by the way, the story that it should have happened, right? After Eden, it should have been like this new creation. But Adam fell, and so this is the, this is the um, story of redemption, okay? And Israel is really like a preview of what's to come, and it's also to repeat the lesson and pound home the lesson of the fall. But really, my, the, the, the argument I'm trying to make is that dual citizenship is where God's people are supposed to be until Jesus comes into his kingdom. Because once Eden fell, then Satan comes and rules, okay? So let me go to Revelation 19. Where are we? Um, let me just skip to verse 12. Speaking of Jesus, his eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems. What are diadems, by the way? Chow. What's a diadem? Do you know? No? Is that a crown? Yes, crowns. So Jesus has a crown, okay? Good job, Chewy. Um... And then skip to verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Right? So remember, Jesus has a sword now. Okay? He's going to strike down the nations because the nations are proxies of Satan. Right? No rivals to God. He's going to smash them all. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And in verse 16, he's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. That's the ultimate vision. But we're not there yet. Okay? That's when the kingdom is here and here and no future. It's just here. Okay, but we're already, but not yet. Now, finally, the question of the New Testament period. That's the big question. And the answer is kind of complex, because there are some passages that speak about Jesus reigning as king now, right? So look at Philippians chapter 2, very famous passage. Uh, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. The bowing act is, a, is an act of what? Submission, subordination. Jesus is king, right? Uh, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The word Lord there, we kind of spiritualize it, oh Lord. Lord means master, king. Jesus is king to the glory of God the Father, right? So there it seems like, ah, oh, New Testament is just like Israel, just like Eden. Jesus is king. But uh-uh-uh, First Peter, uh, built, uh, let's have Marshall read it. <clears throat> Beloved, <clears throat> I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, good. Don't flip the page yet, because we're going to look at First Peter for a bit. Um, what does First Peter say explicitly? He says, I urge you as... We're going to skip that first word, sojourners, but he says, I urge you as... Exiles. Does he say, I urge you as Israel in the promised land? I urge you as the geopolitical state Israel? No. He says, I urge you as exiles. So what does he explicitly tell the church? He says, the church is right back here. We're in exile. We're like in Jeremiah 29. We're living in Babylon. We're not in Israel and Canaan. Because the story of Israel and Canaan was 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 a object lesson about Eden, and the lesson is over. Lesson learned, right? The law is a tutor to lead us to Christ, as Paul says in Galatians. But what's the second, the first word there? Sojourner. What does sojourner mean? We'll cap quotes. Traveler. Traveler, pilgrim, a wanderer. What does the word sojourner evoke? Which story in the Bible? Somebody's called a sojourner. Above all all other characters, this guy is known. I'll say, and plus women, make it widen the range of characters. Who's a sojourner? My evil eye of Sauron. <laughs> Harry. Abraham. Yes! Abraham is a sojourner, right? Abraham is a wanderer, a pilgrim. Remember, did he ever settle down? 
No, he lived in tents all the time. He never settled down. He's wandering. So what is, what is, what is Peter saying when he says, I urge you as exiles, sojourners? What is Peter telling us? He's telling us, we're not here. We're here. Right? Does that make sense? All right. Further proof. Let's go on, okay? This is my argument. Remember, dual citizenship. Um, next passage. Uh, what does dual citizenship look like? Let's read Mark chapter 12. This is an incredibly important passage. Um, how, so so here Jesus, Jesus is also answering the question. Are we in theocracy or are we in dual citizenship? Uh, Neiman, can you read Mark chapter 12? I'm going to interrupt you multiple times. <laughs> and they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Okay, stop right there. All right, this is an incredibly important passage. This, this passage is so rich, I regret that I'm going to just spend like three minutes on it. Um, when, what are taxes to Caesar? Let's review some history. What happened to Israel? Israel was conquered by the Romans. The, the Israel is not like, hey, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, um, no taxation without representation, right? Israel is not like, hey, we sent delegates to the Roman Senate and we agreed to these taxes. No, these taxes were imposed. Well, what's another word for imposed taxes? It also starts with the T. Tribute. <clears throat> Tribute. <laughs> the Romans called them taxes, okay? The rest of the world knew them as forced <coughs> tribute. Tribute is a way to what? Subordinate the people, and it's a way for you to acknowledge the lordship of the rulers, right? Um, and so the real question that the Jews are asking is, is the Roman government, is the Roman Empire legitimate? That's the question. And the reason why this is a trap is because if Jesus says, yes, the Roman Empire is legitimate, what is he actually saying? He's denying the Old Testament hope of the Messiah. Because the hope of the whole Old Testament is that Jesus will come as king and smash Satan. Remember the usurper king who's represented by Rome. And he will establish the kingdom of Israel. And if, if Jesus says, yes, pay tribute, acknowledge the rule of Rome, Jesus would be denying the messianic hopes of the Old Testament and of all the Jewish people. And the people would abandon Jesus because that was their hope. But what's the trap? What if Jesus says the other answer, which is, Tribute to Rome? Goodness, no. No tribute. What, what would happen to Jesus if he said that? What's the trap? Well, he's like a political like enemy, right? Yes! Rome is like, you're, you're saying we're not legit. You're, you're advocating no tribute? The hammer of Rome comes down, right? So he'll be labeled an insurrectionist. So the, so the Herodians and the Pharisees are like, ha, 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 we got him. We got him. Either way, lose, lose. Jesus gives the most astonishing answer. He blows everyone away. This is what he says. Uh, where are we? Neiman, can you keep reading? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they okay, stop right there. So he says, let me, let me say Roman denarius. Now, at the time, everyone knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. But, of course, we don't know. Well, let me keep reading there. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So he's asking about the inscription and image. And here's the, Roman den here's the denarius that was in currency at the time. And the inscription says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. What is that basically saying? That Tiberius, the emperor Tiberius, is the son of God. So the Roman Empire... was a theocracy. Does that make sense? Because you have to acknowledge that Augustus is the son of God. Right? The other side is he's Pontifus Maximus, high priest. Right? So this is why Israel was constantly rebelling against the Roman Empire. And this is why the Roman Empire was constantly on guard against rebellion. Because Israel acknowledged no God but God. And the Roman Empire says you cannot be in the Roman Empire unless you acknowledge that Caesar is God. And so, so the Roman Empire layers on the stake. So Jesus says, okay, what, what, is, what is involved in tribute? What is involved when we pay taxes? And they show him a coin, and Jesus says, oh, so when we pay taxes, essentially, are we saying that the Roman Empire, that Tiberius is the, is the son of God, right? So this is Jesus' answer, okay? Uh, verse 17. Everyone knows the answer, but let's listen to it with fresh perspective. 
Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they, you know, and they marvel at him. Everyone's like flattened. <laughs> no, nobody had ever uttered this paradigm or this answer before ever. This was an amazing answer. What is Jesus essentially saying? Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God. Knowing now this whole setup, what is Jesus essentially saying? How about let's start with the last part. Render, the thing, render to God the things that are God's. Why does he say that? Render to God the things that are God. In light of this, what is he saying? Does it mean that some stuff are not God's stuff? No, that's not what he's saying. Everything is God's. Anyone else? He's contradicting something. He's uh, arguing against something. What is Caesar's not God. There you go. What is the Roman Empire saying? Tiberius is God. And when Jesus says, render to God the things that are God's, what is he saying? Tiberius, you're not God. In fact, of course, what do we know? Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God. And so Jesus is saying no. Jesus is denying the Roman Empire its ultimate overlordship. And yet, what does he say? Render to things... Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Ashley, what is he saying there? Caesar is not God. Um, so, so, then, but, but, so he's, he's taking away divinity from Caesar, but then what is he giving back to Caesar? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What is he saying? I mean, what's the answer? Should we pay taxes to Caesar, yes or no? What is Jesus' essential answer? <coughs> one is 50-50 chance. No? Yes. Yes. Jesus says pay taxes. So what is he essentially saying? When he says, no, Tiberius is not God, pay taxes. What is he saying? So there's like a political sphere and then there's like a spiritual sphere. Jesus is saying dual citizenship. Do you guys get it? Right? Jesus is saying Caesar has a political legitimacy pay taxes to him. He's a political overlord. He is not the spiritual overlord. Only God is God. Do not acknowledge his spiritual religious authority, but acknowledge his political authority, pay taxes. Jesus splits it. Does that make sense? No one had ever given this answer in the history of humanity. All through humanity was always theocracy. Dual citizenship is, was first introduced by Christianity into Jesus' answer. Blew everyone's mind away. No one had ever heard this answer ever before. All right, let's keep, let's keep, uh, any questions there? Yes, um, but so Jesus' answer didn't offend the Roman Empire? Of course it did. You know so, what they did when they, when they crucified him? What did they crucify him for? For being a religious leader? For being a political leader. So both sides didn't believe him. The Roman says, no, you are an insurrection, we will crucify you. And, the, and then the, uh, uh, and the Jews said, you are a heretic. Wait, wait, but, um, the whole question was to, to trip Jesus up, right? Yes. Either way, he's screwed, right? But then doesn't he still fall for the other one where he's like, oh yeah, he's not God? No, he, he splits it, so he's not screwed, but he still angers the Romans, and so he's still crucified. That's the irony of it. Question. So was this statement, like, the epicenter of this, like, dual citizen <coughs> concept? Uh, it's one of the foundational passages to understanding dual citizens. Like, so in his time, these Christians were like, oh... Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, render to God the things that are God. So that yeah, we, that like that, that was that was the mind. theology of political involvement. So what that meant is that Christians can be involved in the politics of the Roman Empire, but Christians do not acknowledge that Caesar is God. So you know what the Roman Empire did? If you don't acknowledge Caesar as God, we will kill you. That's why Christians were killed as atheists. Of course Christians are not atheists, but they meant atheist meaning you, you don't believe in Tiberius or uh, Nero as God, so we're going to feed you to the lions. So Christians died because they didn't believe, they didn't acknowledge the Roman Empire as a theocracy. But the Christians were the best citizens of the Roman Empire. Okay, let's go on to the next passage, uh, John chapter 18, um, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? What is he asking when he says, Are you king of the Jews? What is, he essential, what is, P- what is Pilate essentially asking Jesus? Pilate is the <coughs> Roman governor. He's the representative of the Roman Empire. 
The Roman Empire is asking Jesus, "Are you king of the Jews?" What is he asking? Are you God? Huh? Are you God? No, that's not what they're asking. Although, in a sense, what are they asking? Are you a political leader? Yes. Are you a political rival to Rome? Right? Are you here to battle with us? Should we pull out our swords and duel? That's what the Roman Empire is asking Jesus. What is Jesus' answer? Jesus says, "No, no, no." Jesus says, "Yes." No, that's not what he says. What does he say? <laughs> Jesus answered, "Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me?" Pilate answered, "Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done?" All right, Jesus. Says, okay, okay, okay. I'm gonna stop messing around with you. I'll give you my answer. I'll give you my answer right here. Jesus answered, "My kingdom is not of this world." Okay, stop right there. What, what's his answer? Is it yes or no? My kingdom is not of this world. Chow, what is what is Jesus' answer? Yes. Yes? In what way? Where, where is the yes? Because he's, he's, he's putting himself outside of the world of like the Roman Empire. No, 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 don't go there. Because they, they, said, they said to him, are you a king? And Jesus says, my kingdom. So what is Jesus essentially saying? I am king. I am king. But then the second part, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. What is Jesus essentially saying there? He's saying no. Am I a rival power to Rome? No. So, when he says, my kingdom is not of this world, what is Jesus saying? Dual citizenship. Right? I am a spiritual king, but I am not a political king. At least not yet. Because it's the not yet. Right? He's coming. Revelation 19. Alright. Um, so then Pilate says, oh, let me finish the sentence. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. So basically he says, look, if I were a political rival, I would have an army. Where's my army? I don't have an army. In fact, Peter pulled out a knife. Jesus says, no, no, no. What are you doing? You're misunderstanding everything. Right? So, uh, verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Pilate doesn't understand dual citizenship. Jesus, Pilate says, are you a king? Jesus says, dual citizenship. Pilate says, I don't understand what you're saying. You are a king, right? You're saying you're a king, right? I need an answer to tell my Roman authorities. And what does Jesus say? You say that I'm a king. I love this answer. So ambiguous. Are you a king, yes or no? You say I'm a king. Uh, all right. I'm just going to crucify you. I don't understand. <laughs> um, all right. So this is, okay, so, so the answer then is that we are citizens of two kingdoms. Okay. We're, we're living in both realms, but that the political is temporary. And when will it end? When will the kingdoms of this world end? What great cataclysmic event will, will, will that be? Yes. Jesus' second coming. And then when Jesus comes again, it'll be both. Jesus will reign as political and spiritual ruler. The political kingdoms will end. They're just temporary. Jesus was telling Pilate, you don't know this, but the Roman Empire will end. All empires will end one day. Okay? Um, and so let's go to the, uh, point number six in the brief time that I have. The idea of America as a Christian nation, this is where it gets really controversial. Because like, maybe I'm upsetting 80% of American evangelicals right now. So if you're upset with me, do not kill me. Okay? <laughs> Because <laughs> my answer is yes and no. Um, all right. Uh, so the argument that people make is that America wasn't America founded as a Christian nation. You guys heard this argument before. Right? America is founded as a Christian nation. Now, the history of that is debatable, right? Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were not Christians; they were deists. But let's just, for argument's sake, assume. Let's just concede that point. All right, America is founded as a Christian nation. But let's not approach it from the point of history. Let's approach, approach it from the point of, of theology, of Bible. Okay? What does the Bible say? Is it possible for America to be a Christian nation? What does that mean? When they say Christian nation, they're talking theocracy, right? That there's no rivals to God. Church and state are fused. Is America Israel? No. Israel was a temporary dispensation to teach the lesson of the fall and to prefigure the new kingdom. But with the exile, it's over. God never reinstates Israel. And therefore, this idea that America is 
a kind of theocracy, it just doesn't make any sense. And not only that, it's not America. It would be Israel, right? Not America. Um, so then people say, okay, um, and, 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 you know, we have to forget, we have to remember that we're, we are exiles. We are sojourners. We are not here. And then, so the other argument is people say, okay, well, you know, shouldn't it influence? Shouldn't the Bible and Christian values influence the, the, the politics? Okay, this is where it gets really dense. This by itself could be a two-hour lesson. And my quick answer to that is that um, it's to forget, we're trying to resolve the tension between, there's tension between these two. I completely understand that, right? Like, for example, let's talk about abortion, okay? Abortion has both spiritual and political implications. Do we, is, is abortion a sin? There's a whole other big issue. I believe the Bible says yes. Abortion is tantamount to murder. Now, should we apply that to politics? This is where you feel the tension, right? Uh, all kinds of issues. The Bible says divorce is a sin. Should we allow divorce in the political system? Uh, uh, the Bible says uh, homosexuality is a sin. Should we allow gay marriage? All kinds of tension, okay? We're not going to resolve the tensions today because I gracious, uh, graciously, graciously last ran out of time. But uh, the point here is that uh, there are good governments and there are bad governments, but there are no such things as Christian governments or non-Christian governments. <coughs> Right? Because no government can be, uh, can be Christian because government and politics is not, a, is not a dominion under which Christ reigns um, in the here and now. Right? We're waiting for the second coming. But for now, we're dual citizens. Okay? And I think a great confusion is the Second Chronicles 7.14. Um, very famous verse. Let me just read it to you. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. There's this Michael Card song. Do you guys know that song? Like, if my people... You know the song? Who knows? Wait, come on, you know the song. Like from the, the 80s? I love this song. <laughs> I think it was, it was before all these people were born. Um, there's, who has heard of See You at the Pole? Yeah. Yes, right? See You at the Pole, this is the theme verse of See You at the Pole. Come to the American flag pole, because we're patriots, and let's all gather around and pray, and, and we sing the song. I mean, maybe back when I was in high school, this is a popular song. Um, and the whole idea is that if Christians obey God, if we repent, if we seek God humbly, then God will bless the land, will bless America, right? Uh, America will become a Christian nation. Do you know what's really dubious theology? This is also the National Day of Prayer, the idea behind the National Day of Prayer, is who is this verse addressed to? Second Chronicles. Israel. This verse is, is, is in Israel. We're singing the wrong verse, right? The, 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 Jews in, the Jews in exile or Abraham as a sojourner did not sing this song. It only applies to this one temporary period. So it's really bad theology. And it's really a dubious distinction to say that America is a Christian nation. People are Christian, nations are not. Nations have their own legitimacy. Remember, Paul said, I mean, uh, 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 what is it? Jesus says the Roman Empire is legitimate. The Roman Empire. I don't know if you guys know this, but the Roman Empire threw Christians into pits with lions, right? They fed Christian, they burned Christians at the stake. What did Jesus say? You guys are a legitimate rule. And so uh, uh, our goal is not to fuse church and state. Our goal is not to make America a Christian nation because there is no such thing. That's not a category in the Bible except in Israel, we are dual citizens, we're supposed to be, we're supposed to accept this tension. Okay? And so let's go back to the issue of abortion. Should abortion be uh, banned or, or not banned? In the church, it is a sin. But in the state, this is a question that you guys have to decide on your own. Right? Whether uh, the, the rules, the, the rule is the state should, there are good governments and there are bad governments, right? So, should the government allow for mothers to abort their babies, this is a decision that you have to make on your own, not depending on um, what the church says, but depending on what is good and right for society. Some people will say, it's not a good idea to allow uh, babies to be aborted, so you say, okay, that should be banned. Some of you will say, it's not good to force women to do something that they don't want to do, so you say, okay, we're going to allow that option to happen. So, I have a question. There are people who say that the church did nothing during the Holocaust, or the church did nothing during 
with all this injustice out there? What would you say? Because you're basically based on this, it's like we can't do anything because good Christians can disagree on what the government should be doing. Yeah, that is a great question. The, 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 the philosophy that I'm espousing is called Two Kingdoms. The question that everyone always asks, they think is the Achilles heels of Two Kingdoms, is what about the Nazis? Right? Uh, is the Nazis a legitimate uh, uh, regime? And the answer that I give is I don't know. I don't know. Personally, I would try to kill Hitler. So, so I mean, um, so, I mean, this is a very serious question, right? Like, there's a legitimacy. One of the, this Two Kingdoms theology was used to defend slavery in the South. Okay? Uh, the Christians in the South said, it's not our role to impose Christian values on on uh, biblical values on the state, let the state rule by its own standards. There's, there was slavery in the Roman Empire. That was an argument that the Christian slave owners used. There was slavery in the Roman Empire, so we should just let things be. There should be no slavery within the church, but there, you know, we'll allow it. So Christians used two kingdoms theology to defend American slavery. So this is where things get really complex. Let me just close by, by, by reading to you Acts chapter 5, because... Even though the state is legitimate, right? If you read Romans 13, I'm, I'm just going to skip over it. Paul specifically says, obey the Roman authorities. They are ministers of God. They are instruments of God. But yet in Acts 5, what happens, right? And when the Sanhedrin had brought the apostles, they, sent, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet, you, yet here you are, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So what are they saying? They're saying, we forbid you from preaching the gospel. The Sanhedrin is the political authority in Jerusalem. And what did, what did the apostles say? Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. What are they basically saying? Civil disobedience. If the political regime says, do evil, or um, uh, they prohibit you from preaching the gospel, then we defy the political regime, and we do civil disobedience. And Christians have died for this reason. Uh, uh, millions upon millions of Christians have died as martyrs because the, the, the secular and or pagan government says, don't do what the gospel, don't do what Christ tells you to do, and yet we should do it. So it's a tension. At the same time, we're great citizens. We obey. We, we, we give homage to the political regime. We participate. We're like Daniel. We can be prime ministers. But at the same time, we could also be Daniel in the lion's den. We can be persecuted, and we can... Uh, because, because in the end, there is no God but God. Tiberius is not God. Only Jesus is Lord. All right. Let's pray. No questions. <laughs> uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, uh, for this great gospel truth that Jesus is king. And how does Jesus' kingship manifest today? This is a question that Christians have wrestled with, struggled with. And we certainly don't know. Uh, we certainly don't pretend that we know the full answer of it for the here and now. How should we vote? Should we vote for Romney or should we vote for Obama? Uh, uh, how should we participate? Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to be dual citizens, uh, good citizens of the kingdom of this world, and yet still ultimately faithful to you that Christ alone is Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, guys.